0: Chapter 11 of Being a Boy by Charles Dudley Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mark Penfold. Chapter 11 Home Inventions. The winter season is not all sliding downhill for the farmer boy by any means, yet he contrives to get as much fun out of it as from any part of the year. There is a difference in boys. Some are always jolly, and some go scowling always through life, as if they had a stone bruise on each heel. I like a jolly boy. I used to know one who came round every morning to sell molasses candy, offering two sticks for a cent apiece. It was worth fifty cents a day to see his cheery face. That boy rose in the world. He is now the owner of a large town at the West. To be sure there are no houses in it except his own but there is a map of it and roads and streets are laid out in it with dwellings and churches and academies and a college and an opera house and you could scarcely tell it from springfield or hartford on paper he and all his family have the fever and ague and shake worse than the people at lebanon but they do not mind it it makes them lively in fact ed may is just as jolly as he used to be he calls his town meopolis and expects to be mayor of it. His wife, however, calls the town Maybe. The farmer boy likes to have winter come for one thing, because it freezes up the ground so that he can't dig in it, and it is covered with snow so that there is no picking up stones nor driving the cows to pasture. He would have a very easy time if it were not for the getting up before daylight to build the fires and do the chores. Nature intended the long winter nights for the farmer boy to sleep but in my day he was expected to open his sleepy eyes when the cock crew get out of the warm bed and light a candle struggle into his cold pantaloons and pull on boots in which the thermometer would have gone down to zero rake open the coals on the hearth and start the morning fire and then go to the barn to fodder The frost was thick on the kitchen windows, the snow was drifted against the door, and the journey to the barn in the pale light of dawn over the creaking snow was like an exile's trip to Siberia. The boy was not half awake when he stumbled into the cold barn and was greeted by the lowing and bleating and neighing of cattle waiting for their breakfast. How their breath steamed up from the mangers and hung in frosty spears from their noses! Through the great lofts above the hay where the swallows nested, the winter wind whistled and the snow sifted those old barns were well ventilated i used to spend much valuable time in planning a barn that should be tight and warm with a fire in it if necessary in order to keep the temperature somewhere near the freezing point i couldn't see how the cattle could live in a place where a lively boy full of young blood would freeze to death in a short time if he did not swing his arms and slap his hands and jump about like a goat i thought i would have a sort of perpetual manger that should shake down the hay when it was wanted and a self-acting machine that should cut up the turnips and pass them into the mangers and water always flowing for the cattle and horses to drink with these simple arrangements i could lie in bed and know that the chores were doing themselves it would also be necessary in order that i should not be disturbed that the crow should be taken out of the roosters but i could think of no process to do it It seems to me that the hen-breeders, if they know as much as they say they do, might raise a breed of crowless roosters for the benefit of boys, quiet neighborhoods, and sleepy families. There was another notion that I had about kindling the kitchen fire that I never carried out. It was to have a spring at the head of my bed connecting with a wire which should run to a torpedo which I would plant overnight in the ashes of the fireplace. By touching the spring, I could explode the torpedo, which would scatter the ashes and cover the live coals, and at the same time shake down the sticks of wood which were standing by the side of the ashes in the chimney, and the fire would kindle itself. This ingenious plan was frowned upon by the whole family, who said they did not want to be waked up every morning by an explosion. And yet they expected me to wake up without an explosion. A boy's plans for making life agreeable are hardly ever heeded i never knew a boy farmer who was not eager to go to the district school in the winter there is such a chance for learning that he must be a dull boy who does not come out in the spring a fair skater an accurate snowballer and an accomplished slider downhill with or without a board on his seat on his stomach or on his feet take a moderate hill with a foot-slide down it worn to icy smoothness and a go round of boys on it and there is nothing like it for whittling away boot-leather The boy is the shoemaker's friend. An active lad can wear down a pair of cowhide soles in a week so that the ice will scrape his toes. Sledding or coasting is also slow fun compared to the bareback sliding down a steep hill over a hard, glistening crust. It is not only dangerous, but it is destructive to jacket and pantaloons to a degree to make a tailor laugh. If any other animal wore out his skin as fast as a schoolboy wears out his clothes in winter, it would need a new one once a month in a county district school patches were not by any means a sign of poverty but of the boy's courage and adventurous disposition our elders used to threaten to dress us in leather and put sheet-iron seats in our trousers the boy said that he wore out his trousers on the hard seats in the schoolhouse ciphering hard sums for that extraordinary statement he received two castigations one at home that was mild and one from the schoolmaster who was careful to lay the rod upon the boy's sliding place punishing him as he jocosely called it on a sliding scale according to the thinness of his pantaloons what i liked best at school however was the study of history early history the indian wars we studied it mostly at noontime and we had it illustrated as the children nowadays have object lessons though our object was not so much to have lessons as it was to revive real history. Back of the schoolhouse rose a round hill upon which, tradition said, had stood in colonial times a blockhouse built by the settlers for defense against the Indians, for the Indians had the idea that the whites were not settled enough and used to come nights to settle them with a tomahawk. It was called Fort Hill. It was very steep on each side, and the river ran close by it was a charming place in summer where one could find laurel and checkerberries and sassafras roots and sit in the cool breeze looking at the mountains across the river and listening to the murmur of the deerfield. the methodists built a meeting-house there afterwards but the hill was so slippery in winter that the aged could not climb it and the wind raged so fiercely that it blew nearly all the young methodists away many of whom were afterwards heard of in the west and finally the meeting-house itself came down into the valley and grew a steeple and enjoyed itself ever afterwards it used to be a notion in new england that a meeting-house ought to stand as near heaven as possible the boys at our school divided themselves into two parties one was the early settlers and the other the pequos the latter the most numerous the early settlers built a snow fort on the hill, and a strong fortress it was constructed of snowballs rolled up to a vast size, larger than the cyclopean blocks of stone which formed the ancient Etruscan walls in Italy piled one upon another, and the whole cemented by pouring on water which froze and made the walls solid. The Pequos helped the whites build it it had a covered way under the snow through which only could it be entered and it had bastions and towers and openings to fire from and a great many other things for which there are no names in military books and it had a glacis and a ditch outside when it was completed the early settlers leaving the women in the schoolhouse a prey to the indians used to retire into it and await the attack of the pequos there was only a handful of the garrison while the indians were many and also barbarous it was agreed that they should be barbarous and it was in this light that the great question was settled whether a boy might snowball with balls that he had soaked overnight in water and let freeze they were as hard as cobblestones and if a boy should be hit in the head by one of them he could not tell whether he was a beckwo or an early settler it was considered as unfair to use these ice balls in open fight as it is to use poisoned ammunition in real war but as the whites were protected by the fort and the indians were treacherous by nature It was decided that the latter might use the hard missiles the pequos used to come swarming up the hill with hideous war whoops attacking the fort on all sides with great noise and a shower of balls the garrison replied with yells of defiance and well-directed shots hurling back the invaders when they attempted to scale the walls the settlers had the advantage of position but they were sometimes overpowered by numbers and would often have to surrender but for the ringing of the school bell The Pequos were in great fear of the school-bell. I do not remember that the whites ever hauled down their flag and surrendered voluntarily, but once or twice the fort was carried by storm and the garrison were massacred to a boy and thrown out of the fortress, having been first scalped. To take a boy's cap was to scalp him, and after that he was dead, if he played fair. There were a great many hard hits given and taken, but always cheerfully, for it was in the cause of our early history. The history of Greece and Rome was stuff compared to this, and we had many boys in our school who could imitate the Indian war-whoop enough better than they could scan Arma Verumque Cano. End of chapter 11. Recording by Mark Penfold.